Hi everyone! Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from NVIDIA, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, CISA, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event! Hi, this is David. And this is Shlomi. And you've tuned into Left to Our Own Devices, the product security podcast. Our guest today is Joachim Fox, the Director of Safety and Security at ZF, based in Koblenz, Germany. Joachim leads ZF-wide processes and assessments for functional safety, SOTIF, safety of the intended functionality, and cybersecurity of their products. Joachim is an expert in ensuring the secure and reliable performance of ZF's technology, keeping safety at the forefront of everything they do. Prior to working at ZF, Joachim was engineering manager at TRW, which was acquired by ZF, and manager of control engineering at Siemens. Joachim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, David and Shlomi, for inviting me here. I've been following the podcast uh, several times in, in the past, and it's really a great opportunity to be here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so before we dive into the world of automotive safety, could you tell us about your journey? What led you to become a leader in this crucial field? Yes. As you mentioned already, I started actually as a control engineer, control engineering team lead um, in break-by-wire development for Siemens. So uh, right after university, after PhD, I really dived into uh, a field which is really highly relevant for safety with break-by-wire. And from then on, I went uh, to TRW, which was later acquired by ZF and uh, took on various management roles in software development for braking systems. So it's slip control systems, it's uh, park brake systems, and later on also for steering systems. And in these roles, uh, I usually looked at the basic software and at microcontroller safety and um, uh, looked at it typically also from a more analytical point of view, looking at architecture requirements, safety analysis, and that was a relatively smooth transition later on when the topic of cybersecurity actually came up to say, okay, we have people here who know how to introduce ISO 262. You did that uh, something like seven, eight, nine years ago. Uh, why don't we do the same thing for cybersecurity? Because it's very clear that the cybersecurity standards in automotive are relatively well connected to the safety and follow very similar principles and uh, therefore in our company like in many others not not in all but like in many others we merged the roles of uh, cybersecurity and safety at the start later on they divided but uh, we merged there and um, it was then until uh, mid of uh, 2021 where I then moved over to a corporate role. So I had been working in divisions to work on real-life customer projects and work on braking systems, work on steering systems with our customers and really getting the hands dirty and uh, doing a lot of software development or being involved in that. 
And but then in 2021, I moved to a corporate role, uh, which which I'm having now since uh, since about uh, three years. And that corporate role is uh, overseeing the complete cybersecurity, safety, and that includes also SOTIF, safety of the intended functionality of the whole company as a governance role. Here, I'm not anymore getting my hands dirty in really producing the software and the products, but it's now really overseeing it. We are responsible for processes. We are responsible for conducting internal assessments. For cybersecurity, we are also looking at the um, at the long-term support and uh, doing all the event monitoring and threat intelligence for the company. And uh, that's that's really a big step for me because uh, I was I was developing something like 15, 16 years uh, real-life customer projects, and now I'm essentially overseeing the company, seeing a lot of more products. But I believe for me, that step in the journey was really important to say, I got my hands dirty uh, for many, many years, and now coming to the governance role, I can bring... Uh, some somehow a perspective to the role that helps me coming with realistic demands, also knowing what divisions and development projects really can do, knowing the speed at which they are able to adopt new methodologies and so on. So I believe that helps me very well in setting realistic but challenging goals in, well, achieving really good uh, cybersecurity and safety across our products. Um, yes, that's essentially my journey here. Wow, quite, quite a journey. I think that um, because you were in the trenches and because you do have that background, the people that you are, let's say the, the governance that you're doing is being done from experience. So, you know, nobody can look at you and say, hey, Actually, we can't do that because we're busy with this or we're busy with that um, because you know exactly what those processes are that they're doing. So you're, you're managing from experience and not just from, let's say, taking a role above without having done the work that, you know, that you're actually uh, looking after. Indeed. And I believe this is really crucial because both safety and cybersecurity are essentially risk-based processes. And while in safety... Risk can be measured to some degree, especially when it comes to uh, hardware risks. We, we have failure rates and all of that stuff. And there, uh, there we can do a lot of calculations based on testing and measurement. Uh, but if you look to cybersecurity, then we can't really measure it anymore. I mean, we can make estimates of attack feasibility. That's, that's still possible but it's not as mathematical or uh, physics-based like it would be in safety. So there comes a lot of human judgment. And this human judgment is something that you can't learn at university. Therefore, you need the experience. And therefore, when, when I look at which people should join my team, I usually look for people who's, who know both things, who, who have expert knowledge, for example, in cybersecurity, but also really have some field experience because else making risk-based judgments is really hard. In the end, what we're doing in cybersecurity, for example, in the long-term monitoring, event monitoring, threat intelligence, in the end, we have to make day-by-day -day decisions which of the informations that we're seeing on the internet about potential attacks on, on our systems or potential weaknesses, which is important enough that we have to look at that closer and process it uh, deeply and which 
can be essentially forgotten in the triaging step. And uh, because the amount of information uh, is is just huge, and uh, and I believe we're still in the lucky situation in product security, which is my focus. I'm not looking at IT security. I'm looking at security of of embedded products. I believe there the amount of information is still by far not as big as what we could uh, see in the IT world. So that's still a lucky situation. Nevertheless, it is a lot of information and there are a lot of triaging and risk-based decisions what to look at closer and what to ignore for the moment needs to be taken day by day and for that you need uh, product experience essentially let's talk about zf uh, for a minute zf is, is at the forefront of innovation in the automotive industry as as we know and can you share an example of how your team specifically applies more cutting-edge approaches to ensure the safety and, and security of zf's products I mean, I could certainly talk about the technologies that are in our products, but um, uh, staying again on the security side, I believe, and we're do- looking at deeply embedded products, the technologies to secure the products are actually not as exciting and cutting edge compared, for example, to the IT world. We have very restricted memory and resources, so I believe the solutions to most of the security problems are usually known. Um, challenges are in another area like long-term support. But I believe where we are really having uh, some cutting edge uh, introduced in our governance environment is we're really having established um, a company-wide governance system with with a web platform that we have been developing where we have hundreds of projects, literally hundreds of projects under continuous close monitoring to see where they are in terms of cybersecurity. We have a very rough and very tight um, uh, scoring system for these projects. Um, The assessors of my teams go around the company and look at uh, the important work products from all of the projects. We have that in in a web platform and that enables us really to know exactly where we are in the company with the projects, um, how good we are in process compliance, how good uh, we are in implementing uh, cybersecurity and safety measures. And we have combined that in one platform. So the platform drives both safety and security. And I believe while I still strongly think that safety and security are different concerns um they they have some overlap but but generally they're different concerns the approach we're taking in governance is at the moment essentially safety is something that is very established we can build on the uh, on the on the process world and get data about many projects but cybersecurity is the topic where actually we can get the money from because <laughs> this is a hot topic if I want to finance something, it's definitely easier to finance it via cybersecurity and take the safety on board. But cybersecurity had learned a lot in the last five, six, seven years from how safety governance was performed. So we get the experience from safety. We get the money from cybersecurity and turn that into a highly digitalized approach of how to provide safety and cybersecurity culture, knowledge, and also strict governance to our projects. Now, that's a very interesting insight for all of our listeners who are still working to get more budget for 2024. <laughs> I think it's it's definitely correct. 
And I think it also has a lot to do with, you know, the fact that cybersecurity threats are constantly evolving and have to constantly be be looked upon. And uh, as you said previously, you know, you have to take assumptions and you really have to, uh, you know, almost try to predict what will be coming in the future. So what would you say are the biggest challenges currently facing product security teams in the automotive sector? And what advice can you give them for for tackling those challenges? I mean, the most of the products that I'm uh, overseeing at ZF are actually uh, safety relevant and deeply embedded. Uh, in our product portfolio, we have only very few products with, with high connectivity. Uh, it's, it's mostly focused on deeply embedded safety systems like steering systems, gearboxes, uh, braking systems, airbags, and, uh, and many other things. So the typical things that you see in, in chassis components and yes. Slightly crucial for the make, you know, for cybersecurity attacks. If somebody hits the braking system or the steering system, (laughs) that could be problematic. (laughs) Yes, indeed. I mentioned already, I believe, especially for cybersecurity, the technical solutions that we need there are solutions that are actually very well known. I mean, we we need about uh, we need to talk about. cryptographically signing the software, having secure boot. We talk about uh, secure communications and um, authentication systems for diagnostic access, uh, locking all development access possibilities and so on. This is actually not a new cutting-edge technology, but it needs to be applied in in an embedded context. And the uh, difficulties here come that in the embedded world, um, resources are really, really a challenge. I mean, we, we talk about memory constraints, we talk about CPU load constraints. Um, we talk also about constraints which comes from the overlap of safety and security. So for example, if we have very high safety demands, uh, very high ASIL demands on a software that requires, for example, lockstep microcontrollers to run the software on. But um, there are, for example, at the moment, in, in typical automotive processes, no lockstep cybersecurity coprocessors available. So this uh, cybersecurity coprocessors would usually not fulfill the immediate needs of functional safety for highly uh, safety critical systems. So we have to ha- um, uh, apply other technical solutions which allow us to do both safety and security at the same time. So the biggest Technical challenges are here re- really the resource constraints, not only in our products themselves, but also, for example, in the vehicle networks. It would be nice if every message on the bus systems could be 100% signed or, or coming with, uh, with a Mac, but uh, the capacity of the bus systems is also not capable to do that. So we really have to go into the details and understand which are the critical messages which really need to be secured which are not so critical. And um, so we have to work with a lot of restrictions here. But maybe the biggest challenge that I personally feel, especially for these deeply embedded systems, is not necessarily the technology in the systems themselves, but really the topic of long-term support and and threat intelligence and uh, event monitoring. Because in contrast to IT systems, when we, at least as an automotive supplier, see a potential vulnerability in our products which potentially would need to get fixed 
we are talking of a totally different time scale than what you would do typically with an IT-based system. In an IT-based system, you could uh, uh, have reaction uh, in, in days, maybe even uh, hours implemented. But in deeply embedded systems, that's simply not possible. Um, and, and the two main reasons for that is if you want to modify and patch and update a safety system, you need to go through the release procedures that, that are necessary to put a safety critical system like a brake or a steering system uh, on the road. Uh, the first priority is absolutely always to guarantee the safety of the driver. But even if you're able to produce and release such an update quickly, the distribution of the update is, uh, is, is difficult because as a supplier, we can't do that usually ourselves. We have to go through, um, uh, through the OEMs, through the vehicle manufacturers. They have their update distribution systems. Nowadays, in many cases, for sure, it's possible via over-the-air updates, but not everywhere. Sometimes, actually, you'll have to recall the vehicles to the workshop. And you can imagine that this is a process which takes very long time. So, And this I see as, uh, as one of the biggest challenges that we get the automotive industry, the automotive products, uh, really to a state where we can react fast and very precisely to external threats. I believe currently we're still in the lucky situation that, especially for deeply embedded products, the threat situation is actually quite manageable. Most of the threats in the automotive world uh, look rather into the area of uh, vehicle theft um, so uh, or, or breaking into infotainment systems or similar, but not really breaking into brake systems, gearboxes, uh, or airbags. Nevertheless, we need to apply cybersecurity protection, for example, also to protect the products from being attacked by let's say, friendly hackers, uh, for example, uh, people who want to tune their cars or, uh, or tune their workshops or something like that. We consider that also uh, a hacking attempt, which we definitely want to prevent. But I say currently the threat situation is manageable, but we need to be prepared for the future. With more connectivity come more threats. But on the other side, more con connectivity will enable us also to react faster to the threats. So we want it, we hate it at the same time, but we definitely need to be prepared for it to really face future threats. So, so I have to tell you, you just brought me back to my youth because we had one mechanic in the area where I grew up that he was well known for souping up cars giving them extra power, you know, like taking them and, and adding to the capability of the engine so that they could go yes. a lot faster than maybe they were supposed to go. And when you talked about the friendly hacks, I'm thinking how far we've come in the, in the automotive space that now it might not be taking the, you know, the, the vehicle into the mechanic, but actually going into the into the uh, ECU or the computer, whatever, and and hacking in in order to 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 give the uh, the extra power to the uh, to the vehicle. That's incredible. Yes, it's it it might not even be a car. I mean, a typical use case uh, if if you browse the internet and see what people are doing with their e-bikes, for example, uh, is these e-bikes they have speed limits uh, built into uh, built into the bikes or or power limits because if they if they 
would deliver more speed or more power. They would fall under different regulations. Maybe they would have even to get a number plate, uh, depending on how fast they is. Maybe you would need a driver's license to drive them. And therefore, they're regulated and they're, uh, they're cutting the speed, they're cutting the power. That's an attractive target for hackers also. And um, yeah. and for sure, that's something that needs to be defended because uh, else the driver of the of the bike would be somehow out of the specified and allowed range. Actually, just heard that the WP twenty nine R one five five added uh, motorcycles and motorbikes and e bikes uh, to the regulation just recently. I think two or three weeks ago. So it ties exactly to what you say, Shlomi. Also here in the local market. They're now going to be regulating, and and uh, e-bikes are going to have to have tags on them. So it, it's actually occurring. Yep. And uh, I don't know if we're the first country that's that's implementing it, but um, it's occurring here. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way their people are riding them, <laughs> and uh, and also on the side, the pavements, and you know, and how they're crossing at lights. But the, the the regulations are definitely coming. Also, yeah, we definitely have too many e-bikes here. That's for sure. I want to talk a little bit about fun- functional safety, if you don't mind, Joachim. So functional safety and, and SOTIF are, of course, critical aspects of your role and, and in general in the world of automotive. Uh, how do you balance these different priorities? They seem very different. The, the, the safety priorities on the one hand, uh, and on the other hand, you know, the optimal product performance that I imagine you, you aim for in the company. Yes, for us. Safety is almost at uh, always at the forefront, especially with the products that uh, that I just mentioned, brakes or even products that support autom- autonomous driving or assisted functions. We have radars and and such things. We do not compromise safety. Uh, that's that's in the. Uh, that's a culture uh, in in our industry in 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 the product range that we have here. Safety needs always to go first, and um, and uh, I mean I mentioned um, uh, things like uh, memory and uh, CPU load constraints uh, in in terms of cybersecurity. I would generally say. While for sure these constraints are also there for the safety features, but the safety features are there already since since a long time and uh, they're even much longer there than they have been regulated or actually not regulated but standardized by ISO 26262 so typically all the microcontrollers that we have in automotive at least the ones that we're using in these uh, safety systems are already well supporting these features so things like uh, dual core uh, lockstep architectures memory protection units or watchdog concepts and and all the other stuff that's that's implemented there for a long time i'm not saying that it's always super easy no it is not but i would generally say the automotive industry has absolutely accepted um, the overhead that needs to be put into the technology to support the safety systems for sure when we come to uh, new solutions like complete by wire solutions, for example, we are also working on a, on a complete uh, steer by wire system and having projects with that. Um, then we come to uh, redundancy th- uh, and uh, diverse redundancy even having to be implemented. And uh, that, that leads even to uh, diversity in the bus systems, in the vehicle, to make sure that if one communication line fails, that there is at least a second one, which, which uh, uh, still enables you uh, to have the um, communication which is necessary for, uh, necessary for by wire. But 
generally, I would say, you asked, how do we balance it? And I would say, we're not balancing it. We are not compromising on functional safety. When we looked for SOTIF, so safety of the intended functionality, that's a relatively new safety standard which uh, addresses autonomous uh, functions and functions which, which can also include artificial intelligence and are essentially driving in an unknown environment, then this standard is much newer. It also affects much fewer products. And um, here, I believe, this, this one still needs to settle. And there will be uh, developments in the future because essentially what the standard tries to do is, and that's comparable to cybersecurity, it tries somehow to map the unknown. It tries to somehow formalize how can we capture risk in areas that we don't know. So essentially it goes into the direction of have, having a very careful planning of um, the tests that you are performing to make sure that you're really capturing the essential parts of the environment. And um, one aspect which, uh, which for these systems is also very important is that also here, like in cybersecurity, you have to s somehow perform a long-term monitoring of your system's performance. So an easy case is, for example, if your vehicles are on the road and suddenly governance would decide to introduce new traffic signs, which have not been part of your, uh, of your training data, you might want or might even have to, uh, to, to relearn the systems based on new data that, that are appearing in the field. And I believe some vehicle um, manufacturers, uh, some well-known uh, like, like Tesla, they're, they're heavily relying on capturing real-life data of the environment. And uh, while this certainly generated um, uh, concerns uh, in the beginning, I believe generally the approach is right because they're seeing what is happening in the field. They're quickly adapting their algorithms to it. I'm not voting for let's use it to develop our systems. That's, that's not how we approach it. We, uh, we, we say at the time we're putting a system on the road. We want it to be safe. But for these systems, which heavily depend on estimating the state of the environment, uh, and the environment is to some degree unknown or it changes over time, like introduction of new traffic signs. Um, for these systems, we need to have a constant monitoring process in, uh, such that the systems can adapt to the ever-changing world. Looking at the SOTIF standard, it is relatively new. It is only used in, in very few products. I believe there needs still to be a consolidation, consolidation in the industry. How to do that? Because in many cases, uh, the standard is not very specific on methodologies. But that is also probably coming from the fact that it is hard to be specific if you want to map the unknown. But I mean, the general answer to how do we balance is um, for functional safety, we don't balance. It's just always at the forefront. For SOTIF, we need to include continuous learning because we need to adapt to the ever-changing environment. And I think that is uh, a given with uh, autonomous vehicles. And you mentioned um, Tesla. What, by the way, what were the um, 
the concerns about learning, you know, constantly learning the environment, was it something to do with privacy? Was it something to do with something issue regarding the environment itself or was just that it's not possible? Well, people were worried about it. I believe the general concerns that that I have seen and uh, which are maybe still out there, and maybe it's a more European thing than uh, than uh, than uh, U.S. driven, is that um, the the feeling is that the systems uh, and features may have been oversold to some degree to drivers. Uh, the capabilities of the systems were not uh, fully clear. Drivers uh, expected more autonomy of the systems while the systems actually originally offered only a relatively low level of autonomy and learned. Uh, and over time, the algorithms got better and got improved. But um, I'm, I'm not sure what uh, what the current state there is. I know there were even some some lawsuits in, uh, in that direction. Um, but uh, generally, I would say we need to be very clear of what the system's capabilities are when we place them on the market. We need to communicate that very well. We need to also accept that, um, I mean, that, that may be maybe a different perspective from what uh, lawyers would now say, but we need to accept that to some degree, not all drivers are reading the manual. Um, so <laughs> we need to have intuitive systems which give the driver the right impression of what the system is capable and of what it is not capable so things like um, hands-on detection uh, of of steering wheels, for example, or, uh, or or other systems which monitor whether the driver is really present and awake and really monitoring the road, uh, they are absolutely crucial. If you have systems which are actually not intended as fully autonomous systems, but rather intended as um, assistance um, mm -hmm. for the driver and the, uh, the and the better the systems get, the more important it will be that the system is convinced that the driver is still doing his job as expected. So I'm sure you've encountered interesting or challenging situations in your career when it comes to safety and security. So how did you approach and, and handle them? Or maybe you have a specific example that you want to share with our listeners. I mean, typical situations that we see in safety and security in in real life projects are always when we're uh, when we want to release a system and uh, a last minute bug is being detected. And um, I mean, I, I certainly went through such phases uh, multiple times, and then then you have to make risk judgments. As I said, the most challenging part in what we're doing is usually uh, doing uh, good risk judgments, and sometimes. It is really actually very difficult to communicate the risk uh, uh, to uh, to management uh, to to make a decision whether or not to release a thing. So uh, I had a situation where, um, uh, let's say, luckily, shortly before release, there were um, actually two last-minute bugs which were detected. Uh, one was very easily communicatable. So uh, the parameterization of the vehicle assumed that the vehicle had a wheel base of 11 centimeters, which for uh, vehicle stability systems uh, can lead to, to an unexpected behavior. Because, I mean, what, what is a normal wheel base? Uh, two meters or whatever. And if the parameter is 11 centimeters, then something is wrong. And that's an easily communicatable bug because uh, to all 
managers, it's, it's very clear, hey, we are wrong by a factor of 10 that needs to be corrected. And at the same time, uh, we had the problem with the preemptive task system, with the operating system. And there, there were some race conditions in the operating system. And um, to, to the expert, very, uh, very at the bottom, it was very clear this is a bug which needs correction. But it was much, much, much harder to communicate it, what's going wrong deep down in the preemptive task system of the operating system. In the end, uh, for sure, both uh, both things were corrected before the release. But it was, and that's that's very often the case, um, a big challenge to communicate this in an in an understandable way to to have a language that tells that tells in this case management. What is the associated risk? What could go wrong? Why should we actually stopping the release and um, and and redoing it? And I see this kind of discussion also very frequently when we are looking at cybersecurity and vulnerabilities in the systems, because the safety-related uh, bugs, which we later then corrected, that I just mentioned. These were really bugs that could, under certain conditions, happen uh, in the vehicle. When we are looking at cybersecurity, we are actually one step further. Uh, if there is no attacker, then nothing will happen. That's that's very clear. So you don't you don't have only to think about what is it possible that it happens, but then you have to think about how likely is it actually that somebody exploits this very tricky vulnerability and what could the the hacker actually gain with it and there it's actually even even harder in some cases to uh, to convince the people that this is now an unacceptable vulnerability and it needs to be fixed and this is the kind of risk decisions that we have to essentially take uh, take day by day is uh, does it does it require immediate action is it sufficient to fix it at the next update which is anyway scheduled or what other decision do we take here but um, in the end the challenge is translating risk into a language which is understood without exaggerating uh, being really precise but also without uh, talking the risk down uh, in the end we, we need to uh, and to do fact-based um, communication in such an environment is not always easy because, as I said right in the beginning of the talk, the risk, especially in cybersecurity, cannot really be quantified in the way it's happening once every 30 years or whatever. That's, that's It's not quantifiable. And therefore, um, it's important to find a language um, that that all the actors really understand. A lot, a lot to take in. Um... And I think we can go on for hours, but I, I would love to finish with, with one more question, more personal question. What advice would you give to upcoming professionals who aspire to work in the field of automotive safety and, and security? I would go back to my own journey right from the beginning and say, um, we need a very sound knowledge of safety or cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is something that you typically can learn at university if you're studying computer science. Safety is not very, so functional safety is not very often a deep learning topic at university. You usually learn that only in the industry when you're taking additional classes. Um, um, but I, I generally see two, two ways of getting into the jobs. 
And one is you come with the uh, right educational background, and it's mostly computer science in, in, in cybersecurity and some engineering discipline for safety. And then late, later on, look into product development, or you're coming from product development. And my own career was I'm an electrical engineer. I never learned software, actually. And now I'm somehow doing cybersecurity. I'm not... I'm, I'm not touching the algorithms. I will never program any, any crypto algorithm myself, but that's actually not important. So the, um, uh, the, the second way is actually you come from, from the domain knowledge from, in this case, automotive uh, development, typically very software-heavy development, and then learn, um, learn the fundamentals of cybersecurity or safety later. Um, so there are two ways. And I believe you need both. So the, so the top advice I would give to the people, if you really want to be, in the end, a good cybersecurity or safety manager or, or engineer is get your hands dirty. Get your hands dirty in development. Do not only read the standards. This will not help you making the right decisions. You need to understand how development works. And most of the time, the easiest way to learn that is work a few years in development of software, of electronics, or similar systems. If you don't, it's much, much harder to make the right risk-based decisions. Such, such an important tip. And, and this, is, this has become really a common thread, I think, with almost everyone we talk to. The best, it seems that the best product security teams are the ones who are built of both security professionals and developers, engineers, people who know the product inside and out. So I thank you for that and for this entire conversation, Joachim. Uh, it's been really insightful, and and I wish uh, you, as 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 ZF grows and and becomes more and more innovative, also to to keep innovating in the worlds of of safety and security. I am sure uh, feel feel safer for it. So thank you, and wishing you a, a great new year. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure to be in your podcast. Thank you very much. Great having you on. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com. <laughs>